Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 68. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome James Wu. He is the CEO and founder of Monja. Now, Monja is one of these new breed of companies that have become a, an integral part of the ecosystem where they're really um, providing investors with valuable services to help them get comfortable with this asset class, help them monitor their portfolio, help them with risk management, and, and really get them comfortable that the decisions they're making are the right decisions. And so we talk a lot about Monja and what they're doing and how they're really helping you know, to bring more transparency and bring more uh, independent third-party analysis to the industry. Now, we talk about the lending club issues and the, and the pullback with investors, but we also talk about delinquencies and what trends that James has been seeing there and also what, the, what he thinks the future holds. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, James. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. No, my pleasure. So let's just get started by giving the the listeners a bit of background about yourself, about what you did before you started Monja. Sure. Before Monja, I worked at a company called Morgan Stanley Capital International. So I worked really primarily focused on software products for quantitative portfolio management and uh, risk management. So I guess a big part of my career there was, uh, <laughs> or I guess a lot of people's career was the 2008 global financial crisis. Yeah, that, that was around the time when I remember helping a couple of large institutional investors really make sense of their portfolio. And the biggest problem back then was, I guess, coming down to their realization that they don't have a good way to manage their asset allocation in a quantitative way. And these are we're not talking about small investors. These are sovereign wealth funds, public mm-hmm. pensions, asset managers, and so on. Sure. Yeah. So definitely saw similar analogies in the marketplace lending space, though. I guess we're looking at, so I personally was looking at this, this space back in, uh, I want to say 2014. And man, it was, it was kind of interesting because I remember first seeing the peer-to-peer lending space back in 2006, 2007. And back then, you know, it was just, it was simply uh, two platforms to pick from, Lending Club and Prosper, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you remember those days. And so, so I, we, we looked at the space in 20, 2014, and there were a lot, of, uh, a lot of different platforms and growth of many smaller platforms just coming up every day. And, um, you know, and, and we, I started talking to institutional investors, so really a big problem that, that, that I saw everyone had was trying to make sense of new platforms that come up and trying to manage the complexity. So so you were talking with institutional investors while you were still at NSCI and you were, so I'm just trying to get the, was this something that you obviously you discovered it and you were thinking about it in your spare time, but it sounds like you were, you know, you, you wanted to get, you, you were getting some feedback you know, before you even started Monjo, right? Yeah, well, for the lawyers listening, <laughs> I actually I actually didn't start uh, the idea since after MSCI, but of course, I found a lot of, of the the problems were were very similar. So back in uh, when when I was looking at the portfolio uh, during or right after the global financial crisis, there was a sense that people didn't really know what they're 
what's in their portfolio because of the growing complexity. So I guess in a way, you kind of see a similar dynamic for marketplace lending. Not that people didn't know what they own, but now that you are going beyond just two platforms, now you have dozens and dozens of platforms. And now it's, uh, it's not just consumer lending, but you know, small business lending, asset-backed lending, student loans, and, and so on. It's just a lot more complexity, and it requires uh, really infrastructure and, and, and analytics to organize everything. Okay, so then let's let's just go back then to the start of of, of Monja, and you know you sort of you touched on it, but could you just maybe tease it out a little bit more about what problem you're trying to solve with Monja, what your company actually does? Yeah, sure. So I guess this was by then late 2014. I I was able to recruit two of my co-founders, Matt Kelso and Jesse Velez. So. We got together and um, I guess we're really trying to answer some very simple questions for investors. I guess really two questions. One is, what have I invested and how is it working out for me? And another one is, if you're looking ahead, what, what should I really be investing? And it sounds deceptively simple, but these are uh, questions that obviously drive to the core of the investment process. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about what you should invest in as far as within a platform? I mean, what what do you mean? That's a fairly broad statement. So what you should invest on as far as the asset class versus other asset classes or within a particular platform? Just to tease it out a little bit more. Sure. It's, uh, for an institutional investor, the problem kind of organize itself in, in this way. So one, yes, obviously, should you invest in marketplace lending? versus another asset class, versus other asset classes. You know, what's the relative return, expected losses, and so on. And then once you look in this, this asset class and decide you want to invest, what platforms should you be investing? What asset types should you be investing? And what's the relative returns and the rel- relative risk between the different, different pockets? And of course, once you get really deep into it, uh, it comes down to what risk level should you be investing, specifically which loans, should you be actively selecting loans, and, uh, and so on. So it's a hierarchy of different questions that, that an investor needs to, to run through from the top to bottom, really understanding what are the uh, opportunities for, for investments and what should you really invest. Okay, so you've got, uh, I see on your website here, you've got you know four different solutions, performance attribution, loan scoring, portfolio monitoring, risk management, but this is all solutions I'm guessing for specifically for institutional investors, is that that's your core constituency, right? That's exactly right, Peter. What kind of investors are you are you working with today? When we first started working out, we primarily work with uh, hedge funds and asset managers, really those who are directly purchasing whole loans and uh, and most of the time need to select loans or select platforms. We've uh, expanded quite a bit, so now we also work with banks, broker-dealers, and so on, people who have exposures to these loans on their balance sheet, whether it's direct purchasing or, or in, in deals that they are, the loans that they're purchasing for securitizations. So help them with things like behavioral modeling for prepayment risk, for, for delinquencies and losses, and so on. And uh, they're also, I guess, branching into middle market lending for, for people who provide credit facilities, debt facilities for balance sheet lenders. 
uh, again, coming back to our core competency of being able to apply predictive analytics on loans. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So then, and the one thing I, I think, I'm not sure whether, I think it was one of your blog posts, you talked about um, bringing more transparency to peer-to-peer -peer lending. So I could see how, you know, a lot of the things you're doing there really is helping the investor. But how, how are you bringing more transparency? Look, a lot of people have been talking about transparency for a while. And I think <laughs> platforms are generally getting better, uh, getting, getting better at it and getting pretty good at it by providing data. And I think uh, there are also other vendors out there. A lot of people talk about standardizing data, and that, I think that's obviously a good first step. Mm -hmm. uh, but for us, it's about, I guess, peeling the onion and pulling the data into the right models and right analytics to help uh, on the investment process that I mentioned uh, earlier. I, I can give you one example. Sure. I remember one time we were walking investors through a dashboard, uh, and this was a, a passive forward flow portfolio. They were supposed to be getting a, a fair slice of a platform's origination. And then we, we dug into the portfolio. The aha moment was you started seeing the portfolio having a 50 basis point, 100 basis point lower expected return compared to the platform average. And then you look at it deeper, it comes down to, you know, the, the DTI is just a little higher. The average income is just a little bit lower. You know, sometimes it's not not a huge amount of discrepancy, but being able to have the right framework and the right model to look at the data, uh, it goes a long way. Okay. Okay. So then I'm just curious, do you, like, brings up, a, brings up a, an interesting point. Do you work with both investors who are doing, you know, a passive allocation, just like you mentioned, and those that are also sort of running their own models and doing, uh, you know, doing their own uh, cherry picking, shall we say? Do you work with both kinds of investors? We do, and the distinction is less than uh, than you think. So nowadays, a lot of the passive investors would have credit box around what they want to buy, things they want to exclude. You know, at the end of the day, even if you're passive, you still want to be vigilant in understanding what's going into your portfolio. Sure. Yeah. It's uh, obviously from a selection perspective, there is a difference between actively, quote unquote, cherry picking. I hate that term, but it's <laughs> catchy. Uh, the, the difference between that and really uh, doing the selection on a criteria basis, it just comes down to the mechanism of connection. But yeah, both are getting the same types of benefit from working with us. Right. And I mean, you've also, I mean, you say cherry picking. I mean, every, every, if, 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 even if a person is a, or an institution is a passive investor, they, if they have a credit box, they're, you know, they are doing some sort of selection, shall we say, you know, even if it's just saying, right, we don't want, we don't want any F or G loans or, or, you know, even any, you know, whatever, or, or even saying we don't want, you know, we don't want certain DTIs. I mean, I presume, I mean, most people are not just buying the index, right? Buying every single loan. Most, most investors are at least have some kind of selection criteria, right? Yeah, Peter, that's exactly right. And for us, it's, it's obviously about helping investors craft that criteria. But back, back to, you know, earlier you asked about the, the solutions. One of the things we help people look at their portfolio is uh, for this performance attribution. So it goes something like this. 
say a manager is investing in with the lending club in, in the D's and E category, we can look at the portfolio and, and say, hey, you've invested in a segment that has a higher ability to pay compared to the benchmark. And this adds exactly, you know, somewhere between 25 to 35 basis points to your portfolio return. So that ability to quantify and almost, almost like playing x-ray on the portfolio, that really helps tying back to the investment process and the, right. the results. Right. So, so you obviously to do this, you have to, you have had to create your own benchmark, right? So you're looking at, um, you know, you've obviously, I presume you've taken the, the, the history of, of whatever platform it is and created your own benchmark. And obviously it's a, I presume it's a flexible benchmark. So if you say I'm doing D and E grade loans with a DTI of less than 25%, you can create a benchmark just based on that, right? And then compare their selections to to that benchmark. Is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about just the overall platform benchmark? Yes, Peter, that's exactly right. And as as you probably know, for many years, I worked for a large benchmark provider. Right. So benchmark by itself in isolation is uh, it's not that meaningful. We don't think it stands alone, but uh, for us, creating the right benchmark, it comes down to having the ability to slice and dice against it and to do meaningful comparison like like what you just talked about. Right, because if you, you know, it's not one benchmark because one benchmark is kind of irrelevant unless you're buying the index or, you know, or buying across all kinds of loans because you're going to, you know, if you've got a bank who's saying, I'm only going to buy A-grade loans, that's it. You know, they're going to want a benchmark just, just on the A-grade loans. So... It sounds like what your technology does is create a benchmark based on the entire loan history from which they can then compare what they're doing with that history. Yes, and uh, th- that fit on the benchmark is extremely important because that bank that you're talking about, it's not fair to compare their return versus a higher risk portfolio, you know, portfolios that have D's and E uh, loans in it, uh, simply because this is a manager that's taking a much lower risk uh, yep. and, and has a much safer portfolio. Okay. So then how are you, are you taking into account, like, are you just really basing everything on, on past performance? I mean, are you taking into account macro um, environments? Are you take? I mean, obviously we just, you know, saw, we've seen like, Four interest rate hikes in uh, Lending Club Multiple at Prosper in in recent months. I mean, and obviously that changes the the dynamics of the return dynamics because not every loan grade is increased evenly, and uh, other platforms have had different different changes as well. So, just explain how like backward looking. You know, are you taking in multiple variables. What do you? How does it work? We, we definitely take multiple variables into account and we do it in a way that's cross-platform. And um, that, that really gets you away from the fallacy of looking simply at past performance. Mm-hmm. If you simply look at the past performance of a platform, then you don't really catch the risk factor in which they are, uh, shall we say, deviating away from their investment criteria, their underwriting criteria from the past. And uh, in fact, that, that was what we saw in some of the 2015 vintages where platforms, because they are uh, under pressure to underwrite more, they're under pressure to, to originate more volume uh, in, in a way loosen some of their uh, underwriting criteria. And if you're simply looking at the platform performance 
you, you can't see that. But by looking across many, many different underwriting level variables, you can see those trends and translate to what the expected returns are. Right. So uh, related to this benchmarking, I'm curious about the indexes that you have and maybe, uh, you know, I don't know whether readers might not realize the sort of work you're doing here. You know, it's, it looks like you've got some information that's, you know, it's publicly available on your website. You're, you've got, um, you know, consumer lending index, obviously focused on the marketplace lending industry. You've got a, a consumer lending, you've got a small business. Just tell us a little bit about the indexes and what, what goes into that. The indexes uh, on the construction, we, we take the, the larger platforms in, uh, in each of the, the segments. So whether it's consumer or small business and, and uh, reconstruct the, the return time series for the index. So effectively, this is a set of returns that you would get if you passively replicate the, the portfolio in a, in a way that's similar to the index. Now, Peter, some, I guess related to your earlier comment, nobody really completely replicates this index. So this is a starting point. Generally speaking, for investors that we, we help benchmarking, uh, we create a set of custom indices, indexes that uh, measure specifically in in the the criteria that they are investing in. Right, right. Okay. Okay, so I just I want to move on a little bit and just talk about the lending club. You're obviously you've got you know, I'm sure you've got many investors who are who are clients that are of yours that are investing on lending club. What what have you and it's looking at the at the data and um you know what like just just give me your take and you know and we're we're recording this you know in mid June and you know it'll you know just 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 to give people some uh, some um, context here like what what are you seeing with Lending Club these days? Obviously, the news at Lending Club was a big shock to uh, to everybody and it really highlights the importance of transparency being a big issue. So, you know, stating the obvious. Lending Club has their work cut out for them. They really need to find find ways to restore the confidence of investors. So I guess from our end, we see investors pull back immediately after after the announcement, after the news broke. And um, yet at the same time, we're seeing some signs that investors are returning to uh, returning to their platform. Mm-hmm. But I mean, obviously. You know, there's still obvious risk factors ahead, uh, and, and there's a risk that they're not going to sustain the volume that uh, that's in line with their cost structure. So there's got to be, there's probably something they need to do there. They do have a liquidity cushion uh, on their side, and that's that's a good thing if Lending Club were to either change their business model, in, in a sense, maybe buy more on balance sheet or, or need other accommodations. That's obviously a good thing having that cushion. Mm-hmm. But Obviously, still challenges ahead. Right. So, and what about other other platforms that you know, you know? We've obviously got Prosper, but there's obviously there's many others on the in the consumer space that institutional investors are participating in. Are you seeing this ripple across, or or do you feel like? And obviously, lending clubs had the biggest impact, you know, from what from what I've heard and from what others have said. But are you seeing this uh, this ripple effect? You know, where we're well over a month removed from um, you know, from the news. I mean, like people have had some time to digest it. What, are, where are you? Where are you seeing things land today? I think for investors, 
that understand the asset class fairly well. There's, uh, I guess I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised that many of them are, are pretty understanding about, well, about the potential challenges, but also about understanding this is not the end of the world in context. This is obviously a problem on Lending Club, but the larger case, you know, the the, the bull case for for the the business plan for this business model has not gone away. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think certainly for investors who who see those who see the see the fundamentals, there, there's definitely still a good amount of uh, a good amount of confidence. But for investors that were evaluating this uh, evaluating the asset class, uh, this is Probably, uh, I think it pushes back some deals, uh, some of the investment investment capital that we're going to come into this space, that it, it definitely delays things. Right. Okay. So then I'm just curious then about, you know, what in your view does Lending Club need to do and what what can third-party providers like you guys do to help get investors more comfortable so that they particularly first time investors you know who are now you know a lot a lot of them are, are delaying so what should they do and what can you guys do to help so one of the things we're we're seeing recently and it's not just it's uh, starting to happen prior to the to the lending club news is there seems to be a growing divergence of uh, platform performance so some platforms Still are able to underwrite well uh, and and have have good results in terms of expected returns for for investors, but uh, and we are we get involved in due diligence pretty regularly and we do see some platforms do well, but there are some some other platforms that sometimes the the return is just not up to par. So for us being an independent evaluator of the space for for platforms, we think we. We help investors separate the good from the bad. Uh, Warren Buffett, you know, he once had a quote saying, "Only when the tide goes out do you discover who's swimming butt naked." <laughs> right. Uh, yes. This definitely this definitely applies to platforms. I think the stronger platforms are going to uh, continue being stronger, you know, despite some of the short-term headlines and uh, potential setbacks. But longer term, the good fundamentals in the business and the good performance will prevail and will help that process. Mm-hmm. Right. So I want to go back to something you said earlier, and that is around delinquencies. You said like there were some issues in 2015 and, you know, we've obviously had several interest rate hikes at the platform since then. So I guess what are you seeing today, like from first quarter, even early, I mean, anything from the second quarter, uh, which is obviously not even finished yet, but what what are you seeing as far as how are delinquencies tracking? Um, have the platforms kind of moved beyond the the challenges that they had in 2015? I, I guess I'll, I'll answer in that in two parts. So in terms of current performance, the portfolio level delinquencies, it's not really coming down just yet. And a big part of that is the needs to still work through some of the weak originations, like a starting Q4 2014 and, and even Q1, Q2 2015. There are some pockets of, I guess, lending club calls them pockets of weakness. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the right term. It's not across the board, but there are certainly some 
some segments uh, that weren't underwritten as, as well as we think they should have been. But isn't it just, but just, just event- before you go on, yeah. isn't, isn't there always going to be pockets of weakness because you're not going to have a perfect underwriting model? Or is it, are, you seeing, are you saying that there's pockets of weakness that is more than what they should be or more than average, shall we say? Yeah, pockets of weakness, and uh, well, that's that's Lending Club's term. And for <laughs> us, what we're seeing was some segments that you think should have been more static. It just seems like there were proportionally more weaker borrowers coming in for some of those vintages. Uh, and I mean, obviously not without reasons, right? Again, thinking thinking back for a while, a big challenge was there being too much capital coming in and hot money coming into the space and needing to, to buy loans. And I think that probably has some pressure and um, has some pressure on, on the platforms to originate more and, and probably cause some of the, the weaker underwriting. Uh, I guess the irony of it is uh, looking at the origination in Q2. I mean, obviously it's still early, but just the under, underwriting criteria and the expected returns, you know, I guess that, that also includes the, the, the rates, the lending rates, the coupons. You, when you combine everything together, uh, these new originations are looking better than they have been in quite a few quarters. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're actually fairly bullish about the new originations because the criteria is now better. And, and I would like to think people have learned their lessons and it's borne out by the by the numbers and some of the quantitative measures. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see because, you know, right now, you know, you saw uh, there was news uh, a week or two ago that, you know, Prosper's not buying on Credit Karma or Lending Tree, and, you know, and I'm sure that their direct mail is down. I mean, when you when you have, you know, these platforms, some of them are, you know, uh, we don't know exactly how far Lending Club's down. We won't find that out uh, for a while, but... You know, assuming they're down 50%, shall we say, which I don't think is unreasonable, and it's probably more than that, but assuming they're down 50%, you know, I imagine that when you're doing your marketing spend, you, you can tighten your criteria, and, you know, maybe that's what they've done with, uh, in, you know, if they're increasing the interest rates, borrowers are paying more. Borrowers don't really like paying that much more, but, you know, you, you, know, you can tighten your criteria much more readily when you have smaller loan volumes. And is, so I guess my question is, is that, is that what you're seeing in the second quarter or is there something else in play? We definitely see a tightening of criteria. So we, we had a blog post recently about this tightening of criteria that Lending Club announced. It kind of almost in a footnote in their, in their uh, quarterly earnings release. I mean, obviously, nobody read that far into the quarterly <laughs> earnings release beyond the unfortunate uh, headlines, but it was telling. And um, uh, specifically, they were eliminating some of the worship performing segments. And we definitely saw that in the data in terms of borrowers they eliminated from um, from their criteria. And, and also keeping in mind, they're, they're not doing this in isolation. I think the fact that different lenders, different originators, uh, many of them are under the similar competitive pressure before everyone kind of had to had to uh, loosen their criteria not had to but there was more pressure now that there were fewer loans being given out that's healthier from the perspective of being able to have a tighter underwriting criteria and ultimately better for investors yep no i think that uh, that that's it's gonna be interesting to see once the investor demand comes back 
because yeah, I, I expect it will, and I, I imagine you do as well. But when the investor demand comes back, how are the platforms going to deal with this? Are, the, are we going to see a, you know, a, a back to the same way? I'm, I'm hopeful that we've all learned our lesson. You know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? When, you know, if and when we get back to, you know, this sort of rapid growth. And I don't think, I mean, I think the days of like 100% growth annually for the larger platforms, I, I, I'm guessing is pretty much over. But, you know, even growing at, you know, 40 or 50% a year is still, that's a lot of, a lot of new borrowers coming on board. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think uh, a large part of what was missing before was investor diligence, uh, and and certainly I don't I don't mean to to say all investors like I didn't mean to say none of the investors were paying attention, but certainly when I, I think sometime in 2015 when there was pressure to quickly get the deals done and um, and and get them out the door, there there was certainly less diligence from the investor side. Now that I think there will be more pressure for investors to look, to look more closely, I think that creates the right incentives for both investors and ultimately the platforms, because it's investors that ultimately drive the, the disclosure and the behavior, not the other way around. Yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point, James. So uh, I've got to let you go. Before before I do so, just give us some uh, updates on Monja and what you're working on and what, what, are the, some, what are some of the things we can expect from you guys in the future? Sure. Our plan is really to stay focused and to stay focused on services that help investors add value um, and really, again, back to what I said earlier, services that help with the investment process, help select the right platforms and the right loans. So this means, you know, certainly risk management, pricing and different types of analytics, including potentially secondary market. Look, we're not building a secondary market. We don't think that's our strong suit, but we're pretty excited that companies like Orchard is focusing on on this. And and earlier in the year, we were involved in a couple transactions where we we help evaluate the longs on secondary market. And I think longer term, this is one one area that that will grow quite a bit more if the if the asset class were to be mature and uh, to attract more institutional capital. So we're excited about potential developments in this area. But I guess fundamentally, we are really bullish about the asset class. Despite the headlines, the fundamentals, they haven't been hurt. And in some cases, they're better than before. So we yep. hope there. Yep, I, I, I completely agree with you there, James. I'm also obviously very bullish on this. So on that note, I'll have to let you go. I very much uh, appreciate your time today, James. I appreciate your time. Okay, see ya. Thank you, see ya. In many ways, I think today is just a great time to be investing uh, on these platforms, uh, particularly with Lending Club and Prosper, because they've increased their interest rates. They have you know, tightened up their underwriting a little bit. And, you know, returns are going to be better, most likely, if, you know, barring a, an unforeseen, you know, major recession or something. If we keep kicking along the way we have been, returns are probably going to be higher from loans issued for the rest of this year than they were for the last half of 2015. And so I think, as I said, this is, this bodes well for investors. And I think it bodes well for the industry. We can certainly use some good news and use, you know, some positive uh, momentum here. Hopefully, this will be the upside of all that. 
Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.